Okay, so we are carrying on in our study through the Gospel of Mark. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, or uh, for you younger modern folk, if you flip on your apps or whatever it is you have, but either way, get to Mark chapter 9. And uh, we'll just bow our hearts one more time and then we'll uh, jump into the text. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is such a comfort, Lord, in those times of need, Lord. But your word is also, Lord, that sharp, that two-edged sword that divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Lord, exposes even in our own lives, our own hearts and minds, the things that are not of you. Oh, and Lord, as we look at these things this morning, just speak to us, we pray. Father, if we need encouragement, then Lord, may we be encouraged through your word. Father, if we need to be chastised, rebuked, then Father, do so. And Lord, may we be willing and Lord, just humble enough to allow you to mold us and shape us. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've got as far in our study as verse uh, 33, 34 is kind of where we stopped last time. So just kind of a slight run into this. Just to give you the, the background, we've seen Jesus bring the disciples to that place of realizing that he is the Messiah. You know, they've gone through uh, a number of, uh, well, possibly you know, two and a half years or so uh, to this point, following Jesus around uh, and seeing incredible miracles uh, performed. And, you know, some of the the populace was starting to maybe wonder, but Jesus kept playing down every time he did a miracle. He wouldn't let people talk about it. Um, the Pharisees, of course, the religious leaders, the scribes, uh, are just seeking for any opportunity to um, discredit Jesus. Um, but eventually in Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel, Jesus asks that telling question. And he asks Peter, he says, who do you say I am? And we said, when we are going through our study there, that you know, that is the biggest question for anybody, anytime. Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to that question will determine where you spend eternity. From there, Jesus goes and takes uh, the disciples, and particularly three of them, Peter, James, and John, up to the top of this mountain, seemingly Mount Hermon, in northern Israel, uh, where he's transfigured. And we talked a lot about that last time. Um, Such an important moment. But Jesus then comes down from that mountain into this valley below, and he's confronted by this uh, individual uh, who has a son who's possessed by a devil. Uh, and Jesus deals with this and explains that, that this kind of problem can only be dealt with by prayer and fasting. You know, and we concluded last week by saying that Jesus is looking for those that are serious in their faith. You know, those that recognize that the challenges that we face today, you know, even within a fellowship like this, they're not going to be dealt with by living a nominal Christian life. The idea of prayer and fasting is that you give yourself over to the Lord. The idea of fasting is that we we take ourselves apart from the world, take away from the world, and we focus entirely upon Jesus. And of course, the idea of fasting going without food is that that we have our focus on on him, and that every time your your tummy rumbles, you're reminded again of Jesus. You're reminded to, to think of him. And it just speaks of a life that is given over, that is, is in service to the King of Kings. You know, and that's the kind of lives we need to be living in the days that we are today. Because as we said, you know, that, that father had his son who was bound up by the devil and it had been that way since a child. And 
so many people out there in the world are in just that predicament. They all their lives have been in bondage to the devil. I mean, this um, conference that Simon and Calvary Southampton are putting on. Uh, if any of you get opportunity to go uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, you know, it's looking at this incredible journey from bondage to freedom. Um, you know, being delivered for, for the Israelites, of course, being in Egypt. And, and the scripture gives us this as a, a model, in a sense, that we can look at the children of Israel, we can see how their lives were dreadful in Egypt. They had such burden, such pressure placed upon them by the Egyptians. And suddenly they're set free. You know, and they pass through the waters of the Red Sea and everything else. And, you know, the Lord has done the same for us. That when we step out in faith and trust him, we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, then we're delivered from that bondage of the world and sin and the flesh and the devil, all of those things. So, and that's the kind of point we've got to. Um, and then Jesus ends carrying on his journey. He's already said to the disciples that we're off to Jerusalem. So he's now coming right from the top of Israel, starting to make this journey down, bypassing Galilee pretty much, but just stopping briefly here at Capernaum. And we read in verse 33, he came to Capernaum and being in the house. Now, this house, uh, probably not just any old house, most likely it will be back at Peter's house. This is where Jesus had, in a sense, set up headquarters for this period of his ministry. Uh, in Peter's house. That's where they've been returning to uh, from time to time. Uh, and that's where Jesus has been going out from and doing these various miracles that have been done. And so they come back to, to this house again, almost certainly Peter's house. Uh, and he asks them, he says, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. So clearly they've been having this conversation. Now, you know what it's like if you're a parent and you've ever gone anywhere in a car. Because what happens is you've got the children in the back that are having a conversation. Um, and they think you're in the front and you can't hear. Um, and sometimes it can get to the stage where they start poking or prodding or annoying each other. And again, they think you're oblivious to it. Uh, and it can sometimes get to the, the silent bit where, you know, and this doesn't happen with my children, of course, I'm just this hypothetical. Um, uh, you know, suddenly they, they start doing that, that kind of silent, like on pinch each other or do something so that nobody can hear, but they kind of, they start winding each other up. And of course, as parents, you know everything, you see all that's going on. And it's kind of a little bit like that here, that they've been having this conversation and, and Jesus, Walking on his own, ahead of the group, seemingly here. And it's interesting even just that, that Jesus would take that time apart, wouldn't always be in the the melee and so on. Just that time aside, walking on his own. But the group behind him having this conversation, of course, Jesus hearing everything that's being said. Now, just to to clarify, that word disputed... um, I'm not even really going to try and correctly pronounce this Greek word, but dialogizomai uh, or something like that. Uh, it means to bring together different reasons, okay? It's not necessarily an argument. They weren't really having a go at each other. But they were talking about who is going to be the greatest. Now, get the, the context here. They thought that Jesus was about to overthrow the Roman government. They thought that Jesus was going to come and set up his throne, re-establish the throne of David in Jerusalem. And they thought that they were in this incredibly privileged position that they were going to be given certain roles and responsibilities. Now, of course, what might have triggered this is that Peter, James, and John got to go up the mountain with Jesus. 
And so you can imagine the conversation amongst some of the others. Maybe, you know, Matthew's saying, so, so what, why did he take you guys? Was it, did you, have you done something wrong? Did he tell you off? Was it, you know? And then, you know, you can imagine Peter saying, well, no, no, it was, it was a special secret thing. We're not allowed to tell you about it. You know, because Jesus has said that, they, you know, that they don't say anything about this until I'm risen from the dead. And, and so this conversation then ensues about, well, who is in this group the most important? So it's not necessarily an argument as such, but they were just talking about their position and their rankings and so on. And naturally, there's a, there's a human element that comes into this, is that we all have these egos, we always like to be someone, nobody likes to be the bottom, uh, and so on. So you can imagine the kind of conversation that's taking place. But then look at how Jesus deals with this. Verse 35 says, And he sat down and called the twelve. Now, just to clarify, there have been others as well as the twelve. There was a whole group of them. In fact, we find out in the book of Acts that there was a number of other disciples that had accompanied with Jesus right from the beginning of the baptism uh, with John the Baptist all the way through Jesus' ministry that have been witnesses of everything that, they, that Jesus did and the resurrection, of course. And Matthias, we find, is one of that group who's later appointed to be a disciple in the place of Judas. So there were others sincere followers of Jesus who are there. But Jesus specifically calls this the 12, the 12 that he'd handpicked. And he sits down with them. And, and that sitting down is not, not just a, a casual thing. It, it, typically when a rabbi was about to teach, they would sit down. And actually the congregation would stand up. We could try that maybe one Sunday, see how you get on. I don't know how that would go over. Um, but that, that's how the, the Jews would do it. The, the rabbis would sit down, the, the, the people typically would stand up. And so Jesus sits down, so they, they know he's about to teach them something. But Jesus doesn't do this in a kind of a heavy-handed way. It's not kind of an open rebuke in front of everybody. It's a very gently, gently kind of approach to this instruction that he wants to give them. You know, I'm just reminded of those words that are recorded for us in Matthew 20, sorry, Matthew 12, verse 20, which where Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, verse 3, speaking of Jesus saying, A bruised reed he shall not break, and smoky flax shall he not quench you know jesus could have just totally crushed and destroyed the disciples at this point with a kind of heavy-handed you know rebuke about them being wanting to be the greatest and so on but he doesn't he sits down he calls the 12 and says unto them if any man desire to be first the same shall be last of all and servant of all and jesus is going to lay down a principle now for all those it would follow him. And notice that those that would desire to be first should be last of all and servant of all. I love a phrase that Oswald Chambers uses. And it kind of gets the, 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 the kind of context, really. He says that Jesus would have us be spiritual doormats for other people. Now, that's not something that we would naturally aspire to. But the idea is that we would lay down our lives for other people. That we're actually content to be walked over by other people without them sometimes even noticing us. But that's what servanthood is all about. And that's what Jesus is calling his followers to be. Now, of course, in a, a church environment, you know, we should all be trying to do this. You know, we should all be seeking to serve each other, to do whatever we can to help and support and, and bear each other's burdens. You'll know that one of my favorite verses in the context of the church is Galatians 6 verse 2 which says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ 
That's fundamental for a church. If we can't bear each other's burdens, we're not a church at all. But we should be willing to to help each other, to get under each other's missions, to submit, to get under each other's missions and support each other and, and help each other in every way we can. Not looking out for our own gain, not looking for our own position, but just for the joy of serving others. Because in serving others, ultimately we're serving Christ. And then as an object lesson, we read in verse 36 that he took a child. Now, actually in Matthew's account of this, it says Jesus called a little child. Now, some commentators have suggested this could have even been one of Peter's children. So it's a child that was in the house. And Jesus specifically calls the child over. He takes his child and sets him in the midst of them. Now, they'd have all probably known this child And, of course, this child would have had no rank, no position, no authority whatsoever. And this is why Jesus does it. And when he had taken him into his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. Speaking, of course, of his father. Just speaking of the way that we should be so like children, he'll come back to this point in a, in a short while. But that simplicity that children have. He's saying, whoever shall receive one of such children in my name. And the way that we shouldn't have this hierarchy where we put some people down because of, or whatever, the world has its systems, doesn't it? The way it likes to categorize how important we are. And you know, sometimes people will look at how many letters you have after your name as a, a measure of, your importance, and so on. Sometimes I'll look at the what kind of salary you earn as an indication of your importance or, you know, whatever. The, the world has got its own mechanism. But Jesus saying, that doesn't matter. In, in God's economy, that's not important. It, it's that, that willing to be humble and receive even a child. Not to despise each other, not to look down on each other. You know, and I'm sure we've all had moments in our lives where, you know, we've been quite surprised because people who, on the outside, we may have had no natural affinity with, we may not have had any uh, connection with naturally, in a spiritual sense, suddenly we realize that they're incredible servants of God and they become a real blessing to our lives. You know, the church is a very strange kind of collection of, of individuals, isn't it? You know, you, you get other groups and clubs and so on, and you have the same kind of people that tend to be part of those things. But in the church, we're such a diverse group of people, different backgrounds, different lifestyles in a sense, different careers and things we do during the day and everything else. And the Lord brings us all together. And when we come together, there is no rank, there is no position. We're just all servants together. Well, what a wonderful thing it is. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. We don't have to be anything. We can just be ourselves. It's lovely. That's how it should be. And Jesus makes that point, of course, that in doing that, you know, we're receiving Jesus, but we're also, it speaks of our relationship with our Father as well. And then verse 38, John speaks. And this is the only time that uh, either Matthew, Mark, or Luke record anything that John says. Um, John was one of the youngest seemingly in the group, uh, outlives them all. But John asks this question, he says, John answers him saying, Master, uh, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he follows, not us. He's not part of our group, not part of this crowd. 
And we forbade him because he followed not us. Maybe some of these impetuous youth here coming out in John. But they'd been in this situation very only a few days before this where they'd been confronted with this individual that was possessed by an evil spirit. They couldn't deal with it. Jesus says that kind comes forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. And, and so they then come across this individual, we're not told who it is, that doesn't follow the crowd, not following them, but casts out an evil spirit in Jesus' name based upon the authority of the name of Jesus. And John says, we, we told him that he's not allowed to do that. You know, he, he's not got bad saying disciple on it. Or, you know. Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. And then Jesus says, for he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever should give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. We'll come on to that section in a second. But the idea here is that John concerned that this individual is using Jesus' name, but Jesus is saying, you know, there's people out there that are serving that you don't know anything about. They're doing it in my name. And he says that, Again, verse 40, he that is not against us is on our part. Yeah, there's a lot of people that have a problem with this. Because unless you conform to their particular brand of Christianity, you're wrong. It's a little bit like the situation with Elijah. Elijah thought he was the last of the prophets. King Ahab of Israel and his wicked wife Jezebel had killed most of the prophets of the Lord and Elijah thought he was the only one left. There was 450 prophets of Baal, and Elijah goes head-to-head on Mount Carmel. I'm sure you know the account. After all of that episode, Elijah flees for his life, and he's almost at the point of wanting to die. Sometimes ministry can take its toll on you, and he's just struggling. And then the Lord just reminds him that, actually, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. I've got another 7,000 prophets. You know anything about them, Elijah? You see, sometimes we, we get very insular. We tend to think we're the only ones that God has got and that God is using. But God has others too. And sometimes they may not do things the way we would do things. But, you know, it's down to the Lord to deal with individuals. And, you know, yes, we must stand for the truth. There has to be balance. You know, just because somebody uses Jesus' name doesn't mean that they are for Jesus. Of course, we have that account in the, the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when somebody tries to do the same thing and they are severely beaten up and left in an unpleasant predicament because they try to use the, the name of Jesus and they don't know Jesus. But that's not the case clearly here. No, well, we have to be careful that people that just use Jesus' name in something, that doesn't mean that they are for Christ. But at the same time, we must be careful we don't just then dismiss everybody who is not part of our particular group or has the same understanding as us, you know. And the Lord has used throughout the history of the church all sorts of individuals, all sorts of groups in ways that They've been a real blessing to the body. You know, and it may be that everything they do is not right. I'm going to give you one example. I'll say Hillsong. 
Some people have a real problem with Hillsong. They've written some wonderful worship songs. We were singing one of them this morning. What a beautiful name. They've been a blessing to the body of Christ. Does it mean everything that they do is right? No, not necessarily. The pastor, Brian Houston, I've heard a number of messages he's given and some of them have left me very uncomfortable. I think some of the things he said have been unhelpful and, well, I would go as far as saying shallow at times, but they have been a blessing to the body of Christ. You know, and we need to be careful that we don't just dismiss everybody because in heaven, there's going to be a whole bunch of people that weren't quite where we were theologically and didn't have quite the same style of worship as we have. And That doesn't mean we in any way compromise on the word of God. We stand true, we stand firm on the word of God and we do not tolerate anything that is contrary to what scripture teaches. At the same time, let's not become accusers of the brethren because that comes from Satan. Our job is to get on with what we're doing. Now, Jesus in verse 41 introduces something quite important here and it actually is directly linked to verse 40. Because he says, Whoever, whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name. It's interesting. There's a lovely example in the Old Testament of David's men going and getting that water from the well of Bethlehem, risking their own lives just to bring David a drink, a cup of water. You know, those, those three men that did that become the most uh, exalted men in David's army. You know, they risked their lives just for something simple like that. You know, he that is faithful with a little will be given much. And, you know, those things all, all apply. But Jesus says, even if you give a, a cup of, sorry, who should give, give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Again, not discriminating against certain groups within the church and whatever. Just because you're Christ. We can still bless each other. We can still pray for each other and help each other. He says, Very last century, he shall not lose his, now notice his reward. Jesus introduces here very clearly the idea of rewards. In fact, actually, it comes in earlier. Matthew in uh, the Beatitudes records for us a whole bunch of things there. Speaks of the reward and says about our treasure being in heaven. There is a reward structure within the church for Christians. You know, in, in Second John, it speaks there. In fact, let me just read to you the, the verse to get the wording absolutely right. Look to yourselves, not to others, look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought or worked for, but that we receive a full reward. It's not talking about salvation, that's a gift. We can't earn our salvation, we can't do anything to contribute to it. This is talking about things that we do, the way we live our lives as Christians. And John says, you know, you can receive a full reward, which means that by simple deduction, it's possible to see, receive not a full reward. One of the clearest passages of this is 1 Corinthians. Just turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A very, very clear passage which speaks about rewards. First of all, it states the fact that the foundation is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 carries on from that. It says, now if any man build upon this foundation, so we're in Christ, we're building, this is how we're building, with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, 
hay or stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. It's going to become clear. People will understand it, will see it. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Interesting, isn't it? That we've got three ty- or two types of material there. We've got gold, silver, and precious stones. And we've got wood, hay, and straw. Wood, hay, and stubble, you know, all those things, they get burnt up. There's nothing left. But gold, silver, precious stones, if you put them through a fire, they're purified. And that speaks of the things that we do for the sake of the kingdom. The things that we do for God here and now. The, the, the things that we spend our time in, where we invest our time and our thoughts and our energies. You know, what, what are your hobbies? You know, and it's not wrong to have hobbies. But one of your hobbies should be the word of God. It should be something that you enjoy spending time with and, and studying and learning more about God. It says that if any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, in the New Testament, we're given at least five specific crowns that are mentioned. We've said this before a number of times. Those crowns are given as rewards for faithful service. And when we get to Revelation chapter 4, we find that those crowns, we cast them before Jesus' feet. And at the second coming, Jesus is seen wearing many crowns. That's why we sing the hymn, crowning with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. It's like, I've said this before as well, but it's like turning up to a party if you've been invited to, to somebody's party and everybody in the line in front of you is being greeted as they're going and they've all brought gifts and something and you're standing there and you've not brought anything. Yeah, it, it's embarrassing. How, how much more so though if you were to get to heaven and everybody is receiving crowns for their faithful service to Jesus, for the things they've done in this life, living for him, serving him, being a witness, evangelizing praying for others you know and whenever he gets to lay their crowns at Jesus feet you had nothing to give could you imagine something worse than that I can't that, that's from what I read in scripture that's the only thing we ever get to give to Jesus as a thank you for what he's done for us but by the time you get there and you're before the throne, it's too late. Now is when you earn those crowns by the way we live. Maybe we'll do a topical study on those crowns sometime. It might be beneficial to do that, and just to look at the things that Scripture specifically says we can do. But you know, it's very clear that there is this idea of reward in Scripture based upon how we live. And this goes on, verse 42, and says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, Well, now this is the flip side, isn't it? Because a moment ago, we were just talking about lots of others within the church that maybe not quite where we are or don't see things as we see them, but they are still Christ's. But then we have this bit that says, basically, if you're faithful in your service, you'll be rewarded. But if you're not faithful in your service and it offends somebody, it causes somebody else to stumble or sin, well, watch out. It says, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck 
and he were cast into the sea. Stern words from Jesus. So you don't need to worry about those other ministries that maybe don't quite do things the way we do. Because, you know, it says in Romans to his own master, a man will stand or fall. That's to Jesus. It's not your job to worry about those things. Leave it to, to the Lord. If you're concerned about another ministry, pray. Pray for them. Don't go around criticizing them. If it's clearly something that's not biblical, absolutely, it's right to warn. Verse 43, and if thy hands offend thee. Now we get to this portion of scripture that, again, may trouble some. But if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life main than having two hands to go into hell that goes to the fire that is never, never shall be quenched, where their worm dies not and their fire is quenched not. Before we uh, go on and look at the other things that Jesus says here, if we start with a hand, Jesus is saying basically if your, your hand offends you, if your hand stops you living the life you are supposed to live before Christ, chop it off. Now, well, we'll come back and talk about that and put it in context in just a moment. But one thing that's just, just to highlight here is Jesus clearly speaking about hell. And he's speaking about it as a literal, real place. You know, we need to be very cautious of anybody that would suggest for a moment that hell is not real or it's not literal. Jesus speaks of it throughout his ministry. In fact, it's one of the, the topics that keeps reoccurring that Jesus shares. I just want to read this to you. There was a letter that was published in Time magazine some years ago. And this individual wrote and said, Excellent topic. I truly enjoyed reading. Does heaven exist? I am a devout Christian. And don't give much thought to heaven. My spirituality isn't based upon an anthropomorphic kick-butt God who will throw four generations of children into eternal damnation because some distant forefather ticked him off. Heaven is the flip side of the absolutely barbaric notion of hell that evolved under that kick-butt mindset. And he goes on to say, To me, God is a symbol for something unfathomable, an utter mystery that fills my heart with joy and my spirit with song, says this individual. Now, I like the response because Ray Comfort wrote a response to this, and this was Ray Comfort's response. He says, Notice the use of the words, to me. He said, that's the key. To be an idolater, you have to make a God to suit yourself. One devoid of reference to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Make sure he or she likes the things you like and hates the things you hate. If you like lust, so will your God. If your God doesn't mind you lying and stealing, well, then you can lie and steal and lust to your heart's content. Your God will fill your heart with joy and your spirit with song right up until judgment day. Hell is a real place. Judgment is very real. And Proverbs 28 verse 5 makes this statement. He says, evil men understand not judgment. They that seek the Lord understand all things. It's a very real, real thing. And it's something that we need to be so aware of in terms of the fact that every day there are people that are dying that are going to hell because they do not know Jesus. This bit carries on though now we've talked about the hand jesus now says if thy foot offend thee cut it off for it's better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into a fire that never shall be quenched where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched again just to clarify here jesus doesn't 
in any way suggest that once you die, it's annihilation, that's it, you cease existing. No, it's eternal. We have been created as eternal beings, and you get to choose your destination, either smoking or non-smoking, either heaven or hell. And we do get the choice. You know, people say, why would God, a God of love, send people to hell? He doesn't. The question is, why would people, knowing that God is a God of love, choose hell when he has made a way of escape? Because if you don't choose Jesus Christ, you are choosing hell. There is no other choice. And then we go on to the third of these things. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Now, is Jesus advocating that we go around starting maiming ourselves because of this? No, no, of course he's not. But the point is that actually you would be better chopping a hand or foot or plucking an eye out than end up in hell. Because we're just dealing with a physical body. Actually, in the context here, the real issue is our eternal souls. And in the light of eternity, your physical body won't add up to all that much. And Jesus is trying to get across the point of how important it is to make the correct decision about your eternal destiny. The things then to keep in check. Everything you do, the hand. Everywhere you go, the foot. Everything you see. Because those are the areas that we're going to struggle with. We need to think about the things that we do. What do we do with our time? Everywhere we go. Where do we frequent? Who do we spend time with? Where do we enjoy going and why? And then the things that we allow our eyes to see. Specifically, time that the eyes are kind of the window to the soul. And we allow all sorts of things into our eyes. Jesus says, be so careful. Because those things can lead you away from God. Away from Jesus. And away from heaven. Jesus said this, For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. It's a reference to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meal offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Because the salt was to be offered with everything. It was a kind of seasoning. To make it acceptable, pleasing to God. And Jesus says here that those that are his are going to be salted with fire. Prepared, ready for that offering to God by fire. And it seems to have in context here the kind of trials and the challenges we go through. The Lord will allow those things to make us into the people he wants. That we will be an offering acceptable to him. It's really that verse from Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, I beg you, Paul says. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, the word in Greek is logical, it's your logical service. It makes sense. When you think what he's done for you, it makes sense that you would give your body, your life over to him. And he goes on and says, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's a reasonable service. 
to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Jesus saying, those that are his will have done just that. And sometimes those trials, those challenges we go through are part of that process of God seasoning us, making us ready, that we're an offering that's acceptable to him. If his soul is good, but if it has lost, sorry, but if the soul has lost its saltiness, where will you season it? He says, have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. You know, we should be pleasing to God. We shouldn't allow things into our life that are going to be displeasing to him in any way, shape or form. In closing, I just want to read to you this um, from Oswald Chambers. He says, And Jesus did not say that everyone must cut off the right hand, but if your right hand offends you in your walk with me, cut it off. That's what Jesus is getting at. There are many things that are perfectly legitimate, but if you're going to concentrate on God, you cannot do them. Your right hand is one of the best things you have, but says Jesus, if it hinders you in following his precepts, cut it off. This line of discipline is the sternest one that ever struck mankind. And he goes on and says, when God alters a man by regeneration, the characteristic of the life to begin with is that it is maimed. There are 101 things you dare not do, things that to you and sorry, things that to you and in the eyes of the world that knows you as your right hand and your eye as, uh, and, sorry, and the unspiritual person says, whatever is wrong in that. How absurd you are. The world looks at these things and they think we're crazy, but he says there never has been a saint yet who did not have to live a maimed life to start with. But it's better to enter into life maimed and lovely in God's sight than to be lovely in man's sight and lame in God's. That's the flip side. You know, God calls us to, to give up things that we may think are perfectly good, like our right hand, our third, our eye. You know, are we prepared to give up the very best that we have for him? You know, last week we concluded by saying that God is looking for people that really are serious about their faith. This week that challenge is taken one step further. Are we prepared truly to give up things that may be really good, but are we prepared to give them up for him so that we can grow together, that he can do his work through us as individuals and as a body? And are we prepared to be doormats for each other, to serve each other? You know, it's a lovely thing if we could be such a fellowship that we just strive continually to care for and to serve and to love each other. And God has done a great work already. I think there's more that you have of us yet. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we do thank you for these things. Lord, they are stern words indeed. Lord, they are hard to the the human mind and the human way of thinking. But Lord, we want to be transformed and not think naturally. Help us to think spiritually. Help us to look upon these things and see, Lord, the, the love of our Heavenly Father that has called us into this incredible relationship that has called us to live lives that are separated from the world and that may mean cutting off all manner of things. Lord, help us too to love each other and to bear each other's burdens, to be the people that you've called us to be. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts, we ask. 
and keep us growing in the knowledge and in the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.